This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 157, and today I sat down with Sandro Rocco, the founder and CEO of Sanzo. Sanzo is the first Asian-inspired sparkling water brand made with real fruit, zero-added sugar, and no artificial flavors. Sandro shares his story from growing up as a Filipino-American in New Jersey, where he sold Halloween candy to his friends in school, to earning a degree in chemical engineering from Villanova University, to teaching himself finance and snagging a job at J.P. Morgan, to launching his first startup, which led to a job offer to work at a competitor where he stayed for five years and learned the ins and outs of building a business. We talk about how an experience while shopping at a Korean grocery store in New York City combined with trends in Asian American movies and music inspired him to create Sanzo, why he chose not to use papaya as a flavor for his drinks, and how he quite literally backpacked his way into retail stores. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and you can check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Sandro. How are you doing today? I'm super excited to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here and uh, excited to dig in. Absolutely. I feel like your brand is very buzzy right now. Like, I don't know if you feel that, but I feel like I keep hearing about Sanzo everywhere and great product. Super excited to talk about it. I guess before we start diving into all the good stuff about the brand, I'd love to learn more about you and, you know, where you're from, how you grew up. I really love to dive into the really early days. So why don't you start telling us where you're from and what kind of childhood looked like for you? Yeah, of course. And thanks so much for having me. Super excited to chat. And honestly, even the earlier point that you raised about the buzziness, it's weird because I actually feel like I have like no idea or like a kind of warped sense of reality. Yeah. So I, I oftentimes will end up asking my friends or other people around me what's really happening. I don't really, I don't know what the true north of that is, but I'm glad to hear that you've been seeing. Yeah, I get it. When you're in the trenches, you don't know what's going on outside. <laughs> seriously, seriously. <laughs> but yeah, to give, yeah, I guess give a bit of introduction for myself. I'm Sandra Rocco. I'm the founding CEO of Sanzo. It's crazy now when I just turned 35 several months ago. And, you know, it's kind of been interesting at that time, like reflecting on, I guess, how much has changed in my life and I guess like the world around me. And in many ways, mm. that ended up being the basis for starting the company. I was born in Flushing, Queens, New York in the late 80s to parents who immigrated from the Philippines. And at the time, they already had my two brothers 
And I ended up being the the only one that was born here in the States. And while I was born in Queens, I was raised in New Jersey, a town called Sayreville, that it's probably most popular for being the hometown of John Bon Jovi. Nice. And so, yeah. yeah. A place where legends come from. It makes sense. It makes total sense now. Something's in the water. (laughs) I'll take that. (laughs) <laughs> we are the first, you know, we're definitely like the, the first of the, the Asian American wave, I guess, in our hometown. Definitely, specifically, one of, if not the first Filipino families in our hometown. And that was predominantly Italian American and Irish American. And so growing up, what I often tell folks is that like, I do feel like my growing up experience was almost utopic in that, you know, my town and the surrounding towns around me, like, yes, I grew up in a very heavily Italian and Irish American neighborhood, but the towns around me were like super diverse. I mean, one town over was heavily Portuguese, other town over heavily Dominican and Puerto Rican, uh, 10 minutes away in the other direction um, was a heavily Asian American population. And so growing up, it was just, I had, I, I felt like I had awesome exposure to so many different cultures. And like for, for me, what that ended up netting out to was what I actually consider like home cooking or my comfort food is actually chicken parm and linguine. Because <laughs> another fun fact about Terrible is that while it is or was a small town, it's now grown up quite a bit. In our hometown alone, there's about 25 different either pizzerias or places that serve you know, different kinds of like pasta, Italian sandwiches, things like that. I just had a really, for me at least, like interesting sense of growing up and like, learning to already try so many different types of cuisines and interact with so many different people. (laughs) That's funny. And so what about your parents? What did your parents do? And what was it like with your brothers? Kind of what were the family dynamics there? Yeah, they were college educated in the Philippines. And my mom, actually, they both specifically, and my dad kind of traveled around different industries. But my mom, for the most part, has been in the world of accounting. And my dad had been kind of a world of also like accounting and IT in that regard, you know, had the kind of like steadier middle-class jobs that were able to really like support my brothers and me. And in, in many ways, that kind of stability was very, was very welcomed because my brothers and me, that it, it allowed us to pursue a variety of different things. In particular, I cannot even imagine now as I'm potentially down the precipice, going down the road of having kids myself, the three of us. We all played at least two, if not three or four sports growing up. And so my parents just spent so much of their time that they weren't working to kind of shuttling us around to basketball practice, baseball practice, soccer. And it was just kind of a crazy upbringing, just the three of us playing so many sports. And so like when you look at what an average weeknight or even weekend was, a lot of it was inside of a gym or by a baseball field. (laughs) And it's so crazy because even, you know, when you do sports after school, it's what till five o'clock and then you come home and you eat dinner and then like what you have to do homework. Like it's just so crazy that kids have homework. And isn't it crazy as an adult? I just kind of realized this the other day. I was like, it makes sense homework. You're kind of in it. It's normal when you're in school, but then you become an adult and you're in the working world and you're like, wait, why would my kid still be doing work? (laughs) at night after dinner when I shouldn't even be doing that because it's, do you know what I'm saying? Like, isn't that weird that homework is such a a thing? Yeah. And I guess like ultimately what homework bubbles up into is taking a test. And I could not imagine 
whether in front of a computer or even like on paper, like if someone gave me like a paper test with a Scantron or, you know, that kind of dynamic, I'm like, I really wouldn't know what to do with myself now, especially with like the advancements in AI and whatnot. I'm like, it's like crazy. I think like right now we're going to like a massive wholesale change and just like what we and kids are going to have to know what we're going to actually have to retain versus we're going to have machines and applications that are going to just be able to do so much more for us. So like totally. to your point, the value of doing homework or taking tests, it's no really value. interesting to see how generations develop. There's just no value. I mean, especially just this lost, lost sleep. It's stress for kids. It's just continuing yep. the work that you did all day at school in class. It's so ridiculous. Anyways, to stay on topic. So your <laughs> your dad and your mom were both in, in accounting. And it sounds like it sounds like you guys did a bunch of sports. What did you want to be when you grew up? Even that has, has morphed a lot. So interestingly, what I don't know if I was just saying this to be a good son, but probably and I was probably especially. I think that we years. all do that. I know, right? My brothers did not, which is maybe why I did. Oh. <laughs> my brothers were. I'll say they have, yeah, I mean, that, that that's another story for another day. But I think my brothers having a little bit of a rebellious streak, I think made me as the youngest child want to have some level of like, it's still some stability. Yeah. Someone's got to make the parents happy if the other rebels aren't, you know, it's a right. tough, tough role. I'm just right. kidding. So yeah, what was it that me. you wanted to be that you thought your parents so, might like? So like I did, and I did say this, like I wanted to be an engineer. I enjoyed playing with connect sets growing up. And I guess like I was like a bit of like a, a, a into video games, not not the way that kids are these days, like these right. days. But I don't even know if I was like your classic nerd, but that kind of stuff just enthralled me. Like I enjoyed the idea of building stuff out of nothing, and then yeah. just having something at the very end of it. That's awesome. And your parents loved it. They're like, "Yes, this is great." And your siblings are probably like, "What a suck up! He doesn't really want to do that. He's just saying that." <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So it that reminds was... me of my sister. I'm the oldest and I was the rebel. So my sister, I feel like huh. probably is in a similar, was in a similar situation. And I remember when she told my parents that she wanted to be a brain surgeon. I was like, that's Whoa. some bullshit right there. That is some at bullshit. What age is, at what age was she spreading these lies? <laughs> exactly. To get the attention of my parents. No, it was like, you know, I think 10 years old, 12 years old, something like that. But it was hilarious. So I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense. You like to create, build, engineer, sounds like was something you were really interested in. And so I guess before we go through school and first couple jobs, were there things looking back in your childhood that were pretty entrepreneurial? It doesn't have to be a lemonade stand. It could be building something, creating something, problem solving. What examples do you look back at and say, oh, wow, that was pretty entrepreneurial of me? I wish this was even more entrepreneurial, but Growing up, I actually wasn't the biggest candy eater. I enjoyed everything else. And if you look at photos of me, I am literally, like I said, I'm 35 now. At the age of 10 or 12 years old, I'm only now about 10 pounds heavier than I was at that age. So I definitely loved, uh, I loved to eat. But it was more of the savory stuff, less the sweets. And so for about three years running in middle school, I would actually sell my Halloween candy. I enjoyed the practice of going out and trick-or-treating and like just, I don't know, like dressing up and whatnot. But when it came to actually what to do with the candy itself, I was like, I actually don't want most of this. I maybe took a couple Twix bars, Reese's, and you know, some of the good, good stuff. Good choices. But Gotta then keep after the Twix. that, absolutely. But then after that, but just like go into school and just sell the rest of it. And I think what that instilled in me early on was just like, 
and this was before I even really, I think, appreciated what a job was, but I just enjoyed the idea of, hey, I sell something and then I get additional money and it gives me just like a sense of freedom. Like, ooh, I have this money that I can now spend on a slice of pizza or I don't know. At the time, I think pogs were a huge thing. Yes. And so if anyone remembers pogs, but it let me do, it let me spend money on that. It was just like the freedom that came with having your own money was something that I very much like very was a big moment for me. (laughs) Definitely. That's interesting. So that was almost like your first exposure to entrepreneurship. That's really interesting. And so then what were some of the first jobs that you had? Tell us about school and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, my first main job was, I was about, it must've been 17 at the time. And there were other like odd jobs here or there, but the first, I guess, like real job I had going into my senior year of high school was I was a delivery boy for my then girlfriend's family's deli cafe restaurant. And in many ways, like you can already already kind of see a line between that and, and starting the company. And at the time, I really had no idea that I would ever start a food business. But what I really liked was one, again, being able to be paid in cash, like that was super cool being a delivery boy. I had just gotten my driver's license. So the idea that I could drive around, listen to the radio and earn money was really awesome and fascinating to me. And then obviously, you know, being able to spend time with my then girlfriend and fortunately, you know, her parents and her brother liked me. So we got along really well. It, just, it almost felt like an entree into a job that, yeah, fortunately, yeah, it wasn't one of those jobs where you're just kind of counting the hours down. I actually really enjoyed it. And then obviously it was my first foray into the food business and just both being an entree into the food business, but also seeing how I guess like small family owned businesses ran was something that was also just like super fascinating to me because again, like my parents were working in mostly like corporate jobs, which, you know, obviously was interesting in and of itself, but I really appreciated the humanity in a small like mom and pop business. That's awesome. And then I know that you went to Villanova, which is so interesting because mm-hmm. I, my dad went there for a little oh, bit. And I was going to go there, but I went to another school that was kind of nearby, which was called Eastern University. Do you know that school? Oh my gosh. Literally right down the street from us. Yeah, that's yeah exactly. It's like that Cabrini, whatever. It's like a bunch of little schools yeah. right there. I was there for a semester and realized it was not for me at all. So I went to University of Delaware after that. But if I would have gone to Villanova, we would have overlapped, I think, about a, a year or two there, which is hilarious. Oh, cool. That would have been awesome. (laughs) I know. But you were studying chemical engineering and I was nowhere near that. So we may have never seen each other. (laughs) Exactly. So tell me about your college experience and what you did after that. Yeah, as you kind of touched on, I did at the early, in my early days say that I wanted to be an engineer. And I think for whatever reason throughout high school, it was just like the number one thing in my mind. I was pretty decent in math and science and had a really good AP chemistry and AP calculus teachers. I know I'm like total nerd. I mean, I couldn't handle calculus to save my neck. It was like (laughs) the worst. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's just like too many letters and figures that you have, even to this day, it's funny being in the world of consumer goods. It's just basic arithmetic. We, I, I definitely don't use any bit of what I learned in that regard in those kind of high level math classes. So to that point of like, why are we doing homework? Or like, I guess maybe it's even like, yeah, why does calculus exist? That's what I want to know. Everything in the curriculum, like, yeah, right. that probably should be on the table. What I loved about my college experience, what I feel super fortunate about was while I had the degree in chemical engineering and my church went through the crazy hell that that was of four years, it also 
what I like about Roanoke is that it also encouraged you to be someone else beyond just your academic major. And I took that as permission or as an invitation to get involved in everything else and spend as little time in a classroom as I possibly could. So if you look at, you know, even my whole college career, I was not even the, the greatest student. I really spent a lot of my time focused on extracurriculars. And specifically, you know, we talk about like what laddered up into being an entrepreneur. Really one of my formative experiences, I don't even say of my life. Like I, that's, it's not even just college, but what really set the foundation for me was I had the opportunity to be the editor-in-chief of our college newspaper. And at the time, there were a couple of things that were happening that were, I think, like really invigorating for me. One of which was we were a business that I, we were actually, as a college newspaper, you had the ability to run it like a business that sustained itself on, on advertisements, on subscriptions, things like that. And what I kind of noticed was, hey, first off, hey, this is cool. Here's a way that we could actually pay staffers or just otherwise like, yeah, treat this like a business. And I felt like the previous regime wasn't really capitalizing on that. It really wasn't looking at the newspaper in, in that way. They came from your more traditional journalism backgrounds. And while awesome and necessary to have those kinds of editorial standards, in my mind, I was like, we are ultimately delivering a product and that there's a financial component to. And one of the biggest things for me was, you know, we talked about Villanova and at the time, and it's still the case, you know, we have a pretty awesome basketball program around the local Philadelphia area. There is interest in what's going on around the campus. And so one of the fun things that we did was we were starting to actually go around to the local community. It's a, a certain, sure, like your, your small uh, mom and pop stores, but also regional banks and regional corporations and get them to sign advertising agreements with us. And it really didn't take that much work. You know, they were very excited they, they, you know, to, to hear from us. And, you know, a lot of our pitch was, hey, you're in a very interesting student base that might be interested, as well as surrounding the local Philadelphia area is one of the richest, wealthiest suburban areas of the entire country. So why not market to this incredibly affluent audience? And so it was kind of remarkable, you know, kind of going back to the, you know, selling Halloween candy, kind of remarkable, like in, in some ways how, how easy it could be if you just put forth some effort in, in trying to sell. And so like that was super just fun to be able to, to put together those, those types of agreements. But then the second part, which is ultimately why I wanted to be the editor in chief was I felt like just like journalism we could have built upon and just kind of seeing the two sides, like both hey, creating and iterating on a great core product like journalism, but then also figuring out how to better monetize it. Those were things that pretty actively myself, my co-editor-in-chief, so it was myself and, and, and someone else, and then the rest of our editorial board, it was just so much fun to build. And like within the confines of like a college experience where you still have, I guess, some guardrail, which is nice, it just quickly became all-consuming. And in my mind, like immediately just sparked a plug in it was like a spark like a light bulb in me that was like i don't need the rest of college or classroom experience this experience is giving me everything that I could that everything that, that i could ever ask for were you like i'm gonna go start my own newspaper like what were you thinking from that moment now that you have this new i guess skill set and you're learning and you're inspired you said it was transformational what did that change i guess in the trajectory of where you were planning to work after college with your degree in chemical engineering yeah, maybe it's just a sign that I'm like a dum-dum or just not fully developed. But I took that and immediately went and got a super corporate engineering job. I think what ultimately, I, I guess a couple of things are happening. 
one of which was in 2009. That's when I graduated. It was in the middle of the financial crisis. And so yeah. there was both for myself and, you know, we talk, we talk about my parents. There was very much a feeling for me of, hey, I want to get a job, the degree. The yeah, use the school. degree that you got. Exactly. It right. makes sense. Right. And also, yeah, the one was not a cheap school. And so, mm-hmm. you know, paying back, you know, certain, certain amount of loans and, and whatnot. I've made the decision that still pursuing a, a more safe engineering career was the right choice. And I think a lot of my mindset at 21, 22 years old was, hey, let's get this job that's going to pay you well, give you benefits, and then see how we can apply these learnings in that corporate job. And I think mm-hmm. that was as well-intentioned as I could have gone with it. And I think for a lot of people, that might have been enough. But honestly, within about six months, it just wasn't it. I mean, I ended up staying there three years because I had to take a couple other detours to get to where I, uh, to get to where I am now. But I knew pretty early on that being a kind of traditional engineer was really not it for me. I, I, I wanted something a little bit more exciting. And you stayed there for three years knowing that the whole time? Well, part of it was, I don't think I knew what I wanted. And I think half of that part was, you know, working in a nuclear power plant, which was my first job. You're kind of in the middle of the cornfield in Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half, an hour to an hour and a half west of Philly, which if folks know that area well, you get out into the cornfields pretty quickly. Honestly, just not having enough knowledge of what I could even really pursue or even or even wanted. And then when I did figure out what it is that I wanted, and that was I did want to work in finance in New York City, it also took a bit to actually get that job because we were recovering from the great financial crisis. And so, yeah, maybe a lesson in those first three years was a, a sense of like resilience and sticking sticking out a job you don't really like. Right. Or it's just a sign of, hey, if you don't like what you're doing, figure it out quicker than I did. <laughs> Right. But so how did you go? It looks like you worked at JP Morgan. I think that's the finance job you're talking about. How did you land a job there from working in cornfields, as you said, at a um, nuclear plant? Yeah, that was a heck of a lot of networking and frankly, a lot of learning. I I would go during nights and weekends and almost gave myself like a new, almost like a new minor (laughs) in finance. So just like literally trying to learn finance from the ground up. And then I guess like my break kind of came when a friend of mine from Villanova, he was he was working at JP and uh, JP Morgan and decided he was going to actually pursue an MBA and his spot opened up. And very fortunately, his boss has a soft spot for folks who are coming from outside the finance industry. Wow. Interviewed me, saw that I had, that I was hungry and willing to do some extra work. Yeah, it was really is at, at this point looking back on it, I'm like, oh, that actually was a lot of luck. <laughs> right. It kind of had to be in the right place at the right time, and yeah, because th- those kinds of jobs don't typically come come by through the side door or the back door. And then you started an app or something called DAP. Can you tell us about your first entrepreneurial venture there? Yeah, so that was my first real foray into entrepreneurship. I had had other ideas that I that I had been pursuing. Again, as you can imagine, like being on the board fields, you have some time to think about things, <laughs> daydream, but. <laughs> Right. But like the DAP was the first one that I was like, hmm, okay, let's actually pursue this. So, you know, one of the good things about working on a trading floor or JP Morgan or one at any bank really is your hours tend to be pretty fixed. Unlike the folks who are working in like mergers and acquisitions, you get in at a certain time and you actually and you do actually get out at a certain time, which is nice. 
And so on nights and weekends, I gave me some time to like, you know, ideate and like iterate on certain ideas. And, you know, one of the thoughts that I'd come up with was I had friends who were working in, in, in banking and consulting, putting in long hours, traveling a lot. And when they came back to New York, basically seeing what things they didn't want to do. And one of the things that I thought that I could be helpful on was basically shopping for clothes and like getting them clothes to their doorstep in a way that where they can just go on with their lives and not have to go through this like really annoying process of like going to stores, trying things out or buying. So it was like online, a personal styling app kind of thing. It was, it was like exactly, personal stylist. Exactly. Exactly. Initially just went to some friends and friends of their friends and just started literally going, like they would give me like their basic measurements and I would go to stores I, and then I would show up at their doorstep on like a Thursday or a Friday evening with a bunch of clothes. And I was like, Hey, whatever you want, here you go. Here's the receipt. Just like Venmo me. And then maybe a little bit of like a finder's fee on top of that. Yeah. I just started building up some, you know, an initial, like an MVP, a minimum viable product based off of that. When I got to a point where I had about like 10 clients quickly realized, Hey, the way you would make money on this is actually holding inventory and like selling them the goods. But I quickly hit a wall. Because at that point, I was like, hmm, okay, I'm here in this tiny apartment that I have. Am I really going to be buying a ton of clothes and storing that in either my apartment or a warehouse? Is that a really good use of time and money? It just felt like there was such a gap between what I knew and what I thought you needed to know to start a business. And fortunately, at that time, there were a couple of other folks who were actually diving right into this space. One in particular that was based right in New York City reached out to them, it turned out that they were actually looking for someone super junior to just to just do a bunch of random stuff. And I was pretty game for it. And so I ended up, close, you know, it was about six months that I was doing DAP officially. And I joined that company called Bombfell, which was literally exactly what I was doing. But I felt, again, by my own admission, we're probably about three years ahead of me. And so I figured, right. hey, it may be better to just learn from these folks how they're doing it. It seemed like when I was talking to them that they had already solved a lot of the things that I was thinking about. Mm. If I'm being honest, they were two roommates from Harvard. And I was like, you, you two guys are smarter than I am and even probably have a higher capacity uh, to figure out things than I do. So let me just try to learn under you guys and, and, and see where we go from there. Wow. And so you were there for five years and closed up shop, sounds like, on your company DAP to go work for these guys. I mean, what a dynamic thing. You go from nuclear plant to JP Morgan, you're working in finance to now working in fashion almost, right? It was like yeah, a fashion definitely. platform. Wow. And so what were the things that you learned there? Because you said that there is this gap between what you thought you knew about entrepreneurship and what it actually is to start a company. Did you figure out what that gap was when you were at Bonfell? Yeah. I mean, I think the first few things of which are actually a lot more fundamental and almost like, you know, we talked about like the value of classroom learning and curriculums and whatnot, especially coming from the world of like engineering and finance. I had such a, I had such a perspective on how much I thought you needed to know going into entrepreneurship. And what I learned from these guys was like, actually, no, like a lot of the work is just doing it and learning it on the ground. And frankly, having the fortitude to, to go and you know, like you know, plant the flag and stake the claim. And so, interestingly, what I learned about how they got started was they did the same exact things that I did. They did end up making that leap. They had saved up a, a bit more money than, than than I did to buy those first few lots of apparel to, to then you know ship out to, to customers. 
and they built other systems and processes from there. And so, yeah, I think in some ways that was a bit of my unlock was, okay, you were actually on the right track. Ultimately, yeah, I, I think that gave me the confidence, you know, five years later to feel good about starting Sanzo. I think it, particularly in the apparel industry is, dang, it's a very complicated business. The operations, you think about selling a pair of pants and it's like, okay, well, is that pair of pants a light khaki or a dark khaki? And then, you know, is that waistline, you know, there's all the different waistlines, all the different inseams you have to, to account for, all the different cuts. Is it slim fit or, you know, now slim fit was all you could wear for the last several years. And then now we're getting back into more like wide leg cuts. So it's like, did you just think about one pair of pants and the yeah. amount of complications you can have there? And then there's obviously the subjective nature of whether someone, it fits someone's hips or thighs. Right, right. There's knees, so many different like variables. That. Yeah. You know, one of the right. things that I think is interesting is that your mindset shifted during that experience. Like the way you talked about it just now of, you know, there are these two Harvard guys that were way smarter than me. But then after working with them, you kind of realized, wait a minute, actually, if they can do it, I can probably do it. And I was on the right track. <laughs> So I find that really interesting. And that's kind of part of the reason I do the show is I love to showcase these stories because I think that there's, you know, with all the highlight reels out there, and I think there's so much intimidation internally in organizations, but also outside of founders yep. and CEOs. But really, they're just people that have grinded it out, that have their own stories of a lot of self-doubt along the way. And there's just these pivotal moments that make them realize, you know, whether it's super early on or in the middle of their career or at some point where it clicks and it's like, oh, wait, I can do it too. Yeah. And I think at least in, from my perspective, and maybe this will resonate for some of your listeners, I feel like a lot of like the tech era of like the 2000s and 2010s, I think helped create that intimidation. It mm -hmm. created this jargon mm -hmm. that you felt like you needed to know in order, just in order to start a business that actually we're finding, I mean, especially if you think about a lot of the consumer, like the heavy consumer startups in the 2010s and how unprofitable they are, or just like in some ways, like many of them don't exist or were acquired for pennies in the dollar. It actually just shows those were just gatekeeping mechanisms by perhaps like a certain class of folks who just wanted entrepreneurship to sound this way because it gave them a certain sense of like, self-importance. And I, I apologize if that's a little too strong, but I completely agree that we've done, a, I think, a disservice over the last however long period of time in empowering people to take yeah. control of their careers, their lives, being the real CEOs of their own careers by maybe saying, hey, it doesn't like starting a business maybe doesn't have to be that complicated. Now, right. growing it, scaling it, being successful, like there's a lot there. A lot no there question. It's super hard and not for everyone. Right. But yeah, I think we're on the same page there. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? 
just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Now that you, you know, you work there, you kind of had that insight. What was the pivotal moment for you when you realized that you wanted to create Sanzo? What what was that moment like? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So well, the good thing that Bombell gave me, you know, that was, that was the company that I worked at for, for those five years was, I think my main lesson, and I loved our founders. I mean, that, that's the reason why I was there for five years. I love the mission. I love the business model. I love our founding team. And it more than anything showed me the type of business that I wanted to be a part of or create if I ever had that opportunity. And interestingly at that time, and this one was a bit bit more of like a personal journey for me. I talked at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, I'm Filipino American on both sides, grew up in central New Jersey in a very diverse upbringing, but then also went to, but then also we didn't touch too far heavily on this, but I also went to Villanova, which at the time that I went was not the most diverse school. Right. And yeah. it was actually probably about the first time that I was really beginning to grow aware of my identity as an as like an Asian American. And even then, like still didn't have the greatest appreciation mm-hmm. for it. It really took until my late twenties when I think I yeah, when for me I think I started seeing how Anthony Bourdain talked about his experience in Asia. Chefs like David Chang and like the Momofuku group like really take off with both Asian Americans but also not Asian Americans. And then more recently, yeah, and this is and, and, the, and these are like the specific inspirations, you know, in 2018, seeing the film Crazy Rich Asians become the number one film at the box office. Mm-hmm. And specifically, not just that, but like has since become the sixth highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. Is right it behind really? there's something about Mary. Yeah, it's wow, that's nuts. Crazy. Like it's really it, it's one spot behind there's something about Mary. I mean, I do love that movie, I have to say. Great movie also, right? And then you also that year, I also have to admit, I'm not even the biggest K-pop fan, but that year, the group BTS was going around the United States and literally selling out football stadiums. Those kinds of phenomena just kind of spoke to me and said, hey, like these things can't just be an Asian thing or like an Asian American phenomenon. Like there's gotta be some you know bigger cultural Thing happening here and you know that just gave me a lot of pride and made me also wonder hey is there something that i can contribute to this conversation and so that was definitely part of the story the i mean the other half of it for me was i was just like an avid sparkling water drinker at bombfell our offices were overrun with Lacroix and bubbly and every other flavored sparkling water brand you could name and i just felt like hey but also at the same time there's all the same lemon, lime, grapefruit, mixed berry flavors, you know, those kinds of varieties. And I just felt like, hey, there's something here, you know, like we're seeing culturally what's happening with this Asian American movement. And I was feeling it very deeply on a, on, on a personal level. And then also, you know, what was happening in the world of sparkling water and beverages and just brands and just feeling like, hey, there's got to be something here that there, there had to be a white space there that we could always create something in. And who knew how big it was going to become? but. I just knew that it was interesting enough for me to want to dive further into. Were you watching Crazy Rich Asians when this came up? No, I'm like, what, what was the moment? What were you doing? Do you remember when that connection was made where you were maybe sipping on like sparkling water and you're like, hmm, I see the, you know what I'm saying? Like when the two yeah. worlds like collided, do you remember that moment? 
Yeah, I mean, there, so all these things were already kind of percolating in my mind. Right. But then specifically, and I live in New York City, and there is a very popular Asian market in Koreatown on 32nd Street. And it's called it's called H Mart. And when you and when you walk in, I mean, it's amazingly merchandise, like super clean, like just like all an unbelievable grocery store. Korean owned. It does lean toward being an Asian supermarket, but will also sell every like everything else as well. And the biggest thing that went through my mind was, okay, you're occupied. Like, you're, this grocery store is in the middle of like you know, it, it, it's pretty prime real estate. You know, it, it's in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. Um, you know, packed to the gills, and it's just like an awesome, awesome store. But when you got to the beverage section, there were specifically two refrigerated sections. The first of which was it housed all of these unbelievable Asian beverages, Asian imported beverages, drinks that I had had, you know, growing up, and my parents would give me, but that honestly I didn't feel like I could drink anymore. And most of it was because you know when he turned over the ingredient to, to the label to the ingredient panel, you know, you had drinks that had more sugar and more calories. And a Coca Cola. We had ingredient panels that you literally things you couldn't pronounce. Or maybe with me being a chemical engineering major, you know, I may have seen some of these things in my organic chemistry class, but otherwise didn't really know that I wanted to have in my body. And they were just things that I felt like I couldn't resonate with anymore as a first gen Asian American who grew up here and knew a little bit more about nutrition than than maybe my parents did. And what was interesting was that you know that was the first refrigerated. Section, but the second one was all of these iconic American beverages, and many of them had these like cleaner labels, beautiful packaging, things that I was picking up off the shelf and choosing to drink. And I just felt like, why is there this massive gap? And you figure in a city like New York, you know, in a grocery store like this, this would, if there were brands that were bridging that gap, it would be on this shelf. And the fact that it wasn't said to me, hey, there's maybe an opportunity here. That's awesome. So then it clicked and you're like, let's go. So you started, what was the, if you can tell us a little bit about getting it off the ground and how you kind of, how you launched and how things have been going since then. Yeah. I think a question I get a lot, I'm sure you have as well, is like, cool, you have this idea. And that, mm-hmm. like, now what? Again, if we go back to the previous example, it's doing the things that you would think. So I literally went back to my apartment or went to like a nearby grocery store bought a 12-pack of Canada Dry Seltzer water, ordered purees off of Amazon, a little $20 kitchen scale that folks will use in restaurants or even home cooks if you're just like, or home bakers if you're just measuring you know, measuring stuff. And so, and then I had a Google sheet. And, and so what I would do is I would create different little formulas, record the cost of goods for each of those formulas, as well as like, well, how do I think this tastes? And then I would give it to friends and kind of do the same thing. So I would be measuring both with the formula, like what, what, like what do people think of the drink? And then would build up the unit economic side of it and see whether it was actually viable. What's the worst flavor you came up with? And what was the best flavor that you came up with? Ooh, I do think what we're getting accolades for, I mean, it depends on what you want to go with. So interestingly, I think the first one that we came up with, it's called Calamansi. It's a Filipino lime citrus. It's basically like a lime-orange hybrid in one fruit. It's like, it was actually in many ways the inspiration for the wine. Again, being Filipino, I just felt like, hey, we in America only think about lemons and limes and oranges as like singular fruits. But in Asia, there are a number of fruits that actually kind of occupy like the middle ground. And I feel like those are actually pretty 
perfect citrus fruits and that for the calamansi specifically, it has all of the tartiness of a lime, but then also rounds out with a little bit of sweetness of an orange. And I'm like, this is just delicious. And why the heck has no one done anything with this? Yeah. That's now become like, you know, one of our top sellers, and especially now going into the summer is very refreshing, especially with like a salad or mm-hmm. I don't know, if you have like a hummus platter or things like that, it goes out super well. Yeah. And the worst one, and the reason why it's, you know, we're not actually doing it. Interestingly, I was trying to play around with papaya, which is actually not even really Asian endemic. It was just, I was just playing around with a bunch of different fruits. And what I have since grown to learn about a fruit like papaya, and it's why it's actually important to, when you're doing R&D, to measure your taste and aroma, because a lot of times those can differ. And while I personally like the taste of papaya, when you smell it, it's a pretty bad odor. And to the point where I literally made stuff for my friends and they were like, I'm not even going to drink this because the first whiff I get is a smelly feet. And so I'm not even going to try drinking this. Like, even if it's good, it doesn't matter because it smells like rot. It smells like smelly feet. That's funny. Good lesson for me early on. Yeah. I'm glad I asked to know (laughs) you aren't doing that one. And so I know that you've fundraised from investors. Can you talk about raising capital and what that's been like for you? I mean, it's already so hard in general, but I'm just curious, what have you learned from that experience and what challenges have you faced along the way? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the biggest things I've learned is first off, just knowing what business that you're in. The world of beverage in particular tends to be quite capital intensive. You know, there are other categories in consumer that aren't nearly as such. And so whenever I talk to founders, the first thing that I ask them is, do you need to fundraise? If you don't need to and you can bootstrap it, great. There's no, I think there's talk about the the kind of traps or the trappings or just like the, the misperceptions about this industry. And, you know, a lot of what gets the most coverage, uh, and I say this as someone who has raised venture capital funding, you know, we get sometimes trapped by this idea that like, oh my God, this company raised so much money, they must be crushing it. And like, sure, in, in that world, like I, I will say, I think sometimes it can be, it, it can definitely be a sign that you're on a good trajectory, but it's not necessarily a sign of that. And so for folks who are operating their own business, like if you can operate a business profitably and never have to take a dime of investor capital, I would be the first one to say, go and do that. It is a much, there's a lot less stress to it um, in many ways. And yeah, like you're really much more in control of your own destiny. But in my case, I do operate in beverage, which is at least the way that I have learned this business over the last five years is I don't think you can self-finance a beverage company unless you literally have generational wealth. Yeah. It takes maybe, fine, maybe you can get off the ground in five, six figures, but to really get it moving, in my experience, it takes seven figures worth of capital to really get a brand moving. And so unless you have that, and if you do, awesome. But if you don't, it does require outside funding. And so I think the biggest things that I've learned about fundraising are, it really all comes down to storytelling. It's about getting folks to buy in on your vision. The numbers, I think a lot of folks can think that they're very helpful. And sometimes they are, but oftentimes it's really not because the numbers that you're working with at an early stage are just so small that they're not ultimately that meaningful. Mm -hmm. So if you do have to raise capital, and it's tough because folks, myself included, had to learn this the hard way, that you're really doing yourself a service to get really good at storytelling. And that can even mean putting together, especially now, especially if you're in the world of consumer goods, even something as simple as like having a deck that looks pretty. It maybe in the world of like technology or other things that aren't things that you 
just, just, just like judge a, like a book by the cover in the world of consumer goods, like the cover, that is what people are judging. Right. It's like, like you're building a brand. You're, if your packaging is really great and everything's great and your deck is ugly, it makes no sense. Makes no <laughs> sense. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and so that is my biggest thing for folks, especially who are in the earliest stages is like, get your story down. And then it's about building like vision and momentum. And like, that's everything that I've said there. It's a lot more philosophical. And again, we even talk about what gets folks. Yeah. We we talk about like what makes an entrepreneur, if there's anything for today, it's like removing some of the the mystique that comes from it. It's it's about in the earliest days, great storytelling and getting people bought into your vision. (laughs) So what's one of the worst things an investor said in your experience? Like what was one of the no's? What did they say? I don't know if it's like the worst thing, but like the thematic thing that we get or what shows me, I'd I, I like to think quite frankly that we're operating in a good spot is we get asked all the time, like, is this thing just super niche? Is it just for Asians? Is it just, it can be a very reductive conversation. Then one way, well, one, devalues the entire population. But two, also, I think really lacks creativity or it presupposes that like, Brands can only be built for like X population. And I think if we've seen anything is brands start out in a certain tribe, but then from there, they pulse out into other other groups based on a variety of signals. I think what's been interesting for me is for folks whose job it is and who they're literally getting paid to invest in consumer, which I personally associate consumer with culture. A lot of these folks are not actually students of culture. And so mm. looking at it the other way, the best consumer investors understand culture. And so for whom, fine, I may have to explain certain things like go-to-market strategy or marketing messaging and things like that. But overall, they're actually the ones that I have to least explain it to. And so we go back to the fundraising conversation. Most of our investors are folks for whom they got it the first time around. If I was going through four or five different rounds of questions and due diligence and yada, 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 that actually made them less likely to invest. They were actually looking for ways, for reasons to turn me down. What I've since learned then is if folks are going further down the questioning, I actually cut it off and say, we're actually not right for you. I'd be polite, but you know, basically tell them we're not interested. And what's really interesting is when you tell an investor that, that actually makes them want to invest even more. So it's like a very weird right, dynamic. Right, of course. In, 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 <laughs> Fear in, of missing in, out. In the world of, right. But those are just some little things that I feel like I've learned, frankly, just by brute force and having had so many conversations with investors. Interesting. So how do you know when a... Because I, I think the flip side of what you just said is, oh, but they're asking questions because they want to dive in more. They're that interested. But you're saying that that's not true in your experience, that they're actually just asking questions to probably come up with a reason to say no, which also makes sense. But how do you know which is which? So it depends on your stage, right? So at least in my experience, if you're in your earliest stages and someone is asking too many questions, they're either not a serious investor or they're actually not really that interested in your business. Because I think anyone who is a professional investor in this space understands that all of entrepreneurship frankly, is the crapshoot, right? Like there, there's a, there's ultimately going to be a very low probability of success for anyone. And so that's why I go back to the whole piece about like the, the vision and mission, because if someone is that invested and they really get and really jive with 
like the mission that you're talking about, those are the supporters that you need in your earliest days. Those are the folks that are going to write the check and then immediately ask, hey, how can I be helpful? They're going to immediately write the check and tell five of their closest friends, hey, you got to buy this product. And those are the folks that you want supporting you. The folks who are asking 10 rounds of questions, they're going to write the check and then immediately ask you more questions um, about why you're not doing X, Y, Z things. And then ultimately, right, in those rounds of questions, they've actually taken up a decent, like a pretty significant amount of time and resources that you could be using to grow your business or talk to other investors. And that's the other thing too, is like the best investors understand that your time is best spent building the business. And so if they're asking you all of these questions, they don't actually under, again, they don't actually understand or respect your role as a super early stage entrepreneur. Now, look, as you go further up the ladder and, you know, we have raised some institutional capital, yes, you are going to have to answer more questions. You're going to have to have a more robust financial plan. Like, yes, you are going to have to, like, there is a level of rigor, but that I think is, you know, that gets into a next a next right. level or for maybe Makes a different sense. podcast around the types of questions that they're asking mm-hmm. and, you know, basically like, like assessing the quality of the questions that are being asked. And then even for them, though, and I'll say this as someone who's now raised venture capital, even they know and they understand, hey, there's only so many rounds that I get because I want to be respectful of this entrepreneur's time right. and resources. And we're very grateful that even our institutional investors understand that balance. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so I want to kind of talk about the product. The The branding is awesome. I thanks so much for sending over some of the grapefruit flavor. I think it's called, hey. tell me how to pronounce it, pomelo? Pomelo. Yes. Pomelo. Amazing. Yeah. It's, Isn't it so it, cute to say? Isn't it so fun? It is fun. I just didn't want to screw it up. <laughs> but <laughs> but that it tastes so good. It's no longer in my house. It was gone a long time ago. Like the day it <laughs> got here, it disappeared. I had family in town too. But I was lucky I got one can and it was really good. So I'm excited to try the other flavors for sure. But I really love what you guys are doing. And I guess to kind of start wrapping things up here, I'd love to kind of hear more about you've built the company, you've fundraised, looking back and kind of seeing this experience you've had in in building this business. And also I want to talk about retail. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way that you think would be some great advice for entrepreneurs thinking about taking the leap to build their own company? The first one, if you're thinking about taking the leap and you're already going down that path, chances are your heart is telling you something that your mind just needs to get its head around, right? Mm-hmm. And look, we've talked about this before that entrepreneurship, it isn't for everyone. It is a pretty, it's a taxing journey, it's a taxing life. You know, there are a lot of sacrifices that you end up having to make, especially in the earliest days. And I think it is important to demystify that part. If we could shift the resources and how we talk about entrepreneurship from like, let's remove the jargon, but also I think it is fine to talk about the realness of, how hard it is because it takes a lot of time and energy to build a business. So that's step one though. But like, if you are already down that path, the biggest thing that I tell folks is you got to get out of the gate. Too many times I talk to folks who are like, I have an idea. I'm thinking about X, Y, Z. And then they'll come back three, four months later and I'll ask them how it's going. And it's like, yeah, it hasn't really moved much or I'm still thinking about it or I'm still asking these fourth and fifth order questions to see whether I want to do it. And what I just often found is that in greater than 95% of those cases, those folks don't actually ever get out of door. And so for folks who are playing with the idea, 
you really have to have a bias towards action. Do something each day to, to push the ball forward. And it's not just reading something on the internet or reading a blog about how to start a business. It's like going out there and actually starting the business. It's going out there and talking to prospective customers, going out there and like trying to build something. And if and when it fails, finding a, an entrepreneur who's willing to to, you know, give you some feedback. Like actually doing, basically, like actually do something. I think is the number one challenge that I have for aspiring entrepreneurs is take that aspiring and get close to like becoming one and and, and build something. Yeah, that's awesome. And so going into the retail conversation, you're in over five thousand doors, which is amazing. And so talk to us about how you got into your first retailer and expanded from there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, again, like I'll, I'll demystify for folks that are looking to start, especially like a food and beverage business or one that's reliant on retail distribution. It starts the way you think it might, which is like cold calling, cold emailing, or in my case, in the world of grocery, walking directly into a grocery store and asking to see a manager. And our first major retailer was Whole Foods. And that one was literally a cold email that I sent to the person who was in charge of purchasing and procurement for all the Whole Foods stores in the New York tri-state. I got lucky in that within five minutes, he got back to me and said, hey, send me samples. Send him the samples. And a week later, he said, I really like it. And then we and, and then we went from there. And so fine, maybe my example is a little bit of extreme. Yeah. That is how business can be done to other stores. You know, and that was our first major retailer. But you know, that was already at a time when I maybe had other, maybe 25 to 50 other folks on board. And for them, it was, I would literally have a cooler with Sanzo or in my backpack and put ice in it and product, take the subway, and then literally just walk up and down the street into stores, getting folks to try it out and see if they wanted to buy a couple of cases. And if they did, I would write a PO, like a purchase order on the spot, or I would go back home, grab some product, and then drop off the cases with a purchase order. And it was frankly as simple as that. And some, you, know, we, you mentioned like a lemonade stand. This isn't too far off from that. That's interesting. And you just do it over and over and over again. Well, in New York too, you're in New York. I mean, that's a hell of a lot easier to throw in a backpack and walk around to a bunch of places that'll matter. You know, sure. <laughs> it's like, that. that's very beneficial to be in the city. I think and do that. Sure. Or you get in your car and you drive around. But either way, it sounds like you pounded pavement and it's pretty awesome to see you get to where you are and congrats on all the success. Before we wrap up, what is next for Sansa? What can we see coming out this year? Yeah, sure. So you actually you mentioned it. Our newest flavor just released to the country at, at every Whole Foods, and it's our pomelo grapefruit. Oh, nice. Yeah. So otherwise, the biggest thing for us is just continuing to grow our distribution. We're sold in every Whole Foods in the country, every Sprouts in the country, several hundred Targets, and then a little over a thousand Panda Express locations. And then we just announced last week that we're selling, and this is more for your California and Hawaii listeners, but we just rolled out into every Vons, Safeway, and Pavilions in the state of California and Hawaii. So, you know, if you're interested in our story, you want to see, would encourage you, you know, support a small business, you know, give us a, give us a look. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and, and sharing your awesome story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. 